wanted to let you know that we're splitting this show into two parts because it came out to be very long. Uh, also, the show was recorded just before Christmas, and uh, so if there was anything timely in that show, uh, I apologize for that. Uh, we have full-time jobs, and I was moving, and had no internet, and blah, 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 and awfulness of Boston housing, and etc. So, uh, anyway, uh, bright thing is now that's done, and we have a podcast. So, uh, <laughs> this is now January 8th or 9th when this is going to be uploaded, so... Um, yeah, get in touch with us in all the usual ways, and uh, we hope to talk to you soon again. Welcome to Transit Matters, episode 7. We are here uh, recording. Uh, today's show is going to be a little recap of a bunch of news, and we're going to talk about the latest, uh, the latest event that we went to, all three of us. Uh, it was the Livable Streets Alliance hosting their annual Street Talk 10 in 1. Uh, there were 10 speakers there, and each had uh, about 10 minutes to speak. And we had a bunch of, there was a bunch of interesting stuff that was uh, was heard there, and we had some discussions afterwards, so we're going to go through that. Um, I think we're going to do that first. Anyway, um, I'm Jeremy Mendelson. I am a transit planner and advocate. And I'm Josh Fairchild. I work in commercial real estate. I'm a huge transit enthusiast, um, and... Uh, um, today our show is it's gonna it's gonna be a little bit different than what we've done in the last few shows. We're gonna do our main topic first, and then go into news after that if we have time. Uh, Mark Abunia is not able to join us tonight, um, unfortunately. And uh, but we what we're trying to do is put out a show. We're getting closer to our goal of uh, trying to do this every two weeks or so. <laughs> so you know, in the, for the sake of that, we're trying to get this show in before you know the holidays, so that we can have another show coming at you um, the, the first or second week of January. So look forward to that. And definitely give us uh, feedback uh, on maybe the format of the show tonight and things like that, and let us know uh, um, that you want Mark back. So, Cool, yeah, and the place to do that is feedback at transitmatters.info, or uh, say a website by that domain, uh, or uh, Twitter at Transit Matters. Um, you can find me at Critical Transit, and uh, Josh, you are... I am at Hatchback31. Thank you. I know that. It's in my Twitter feed. Um, all right, yes, yeah, so why don't we get started? Uh, we're going to talk about the street talk first. Yeah, sounds good. This We, we had a great time at this event. It was in the um, Central Square Theater, I believe. Yes. Um, the place was packed. Um, they've been growing this every year, and uh, I hope next year it's even, you know an even bigger venue. They definitely sold out, so um, 10 talks. It was great. Um, the first, the first, we're going to touch on more some of these way more in depth than others, um, but we'll mention each one. And uh, they have um, this on their um, YouTube channel, so you can watch the whole thing. Um, but we're just going to give you a taste of it and give give you some of our analysis of what we thought of some of the talks, some of the speakers. Uh, first up was Alice Brown from uh, Go Boston 2030, and they're sort of they, they've got this campaign. They're calling it an Imagine campaign, and they're by by talking about 2030, they're they're wanting to have a transformative a transportation plan. So they're really wanting people to help create a vision for what transit um, will be, transportation will be in Boston by the year 2030. And they're rolling it out. Um, I guess uh, this this fall they started um, rolling this out in, in one or two places around the city. And the Imagine, um, <clears throat> I guess the Imagine, what are they calling this? Like Sort of like a marketing blitz or something like that? Yeah, they want to do a lot of outreach and they're just trying to get ideas on what people want and think about the future, you know, and they said that, I think she was talking in her presentation about, um, you know, 15 years can be very different than what it is today, and I don't remember all the, the details that she talked about, but, you know, the smartphones weren't around, and, you, you know, you just, different ways you did things 15 years ago, so it's sort of, you know, trying to think about what, what we want to see and what are the biggest issues that, that people see. And they're not trying, they're, they're this is sort of, uh, there's no bad ideas, we're sort of at that brainstorming stage where they're wanting people to, I guess, uh, get the creative juices flowing by just asking questions, you know, about, uh, one of the questions that was an example was, what will transportation be like in Boston when, you know, Boston's underwater, you know? So they were just putting anything on the table, really. So this would be interesting, and they're going to go live with the with the campaign um, to 
um, to the general public in January. So you'll definitely be seeing more about this, and we encourage you to participate in this planning process. And, of course, and as we said, this is just the first stage of it. So it was really just her letting us know that this is what's what's coming down the pipeline. And I think one of the things that we find interesting about this and, and exciting and important is that this is a Boston 2030 transportation plan. Um, this is not the whole region. And, you know, we've talked about it's been a recurring, show, recurring theme on this show that um, these kinds of plans are going to become more localized as, um, as federal funds are less available, um, as um, cities and municipalities are feeling the crunch, they're going to be feeling the need from their citizens and even from the top down to come up with more localized uh, plans for how to solve their problems. So, Yeah, and the one thing I, I really want to underscore about this is that, you know, they were talking about how, and this is the city of Boston. Um, you know, Alice Brown is a, an employee of the city of Boston, uh, I believe, in the transportation department. And uh, you know, they're talking about how we need to look at really transformative projects. And that was a word that kept coming back in the presentation. And um, you know, that's exciting because um, the the recent things that we've done, you know, this the Silver Line and these door zone bike lanes and this sort of stuff that's going on. It's like that's that's not you know in the transportation arena at least, um, you know that's not going to get us there. So it's nice to see that, you know, there's just some attention to potentially transformative things and, and, uh, you know, will something, you know, we know we have a housing crisis. We know we have a lack of rapid transit you know, we know we have a job issue and are, um, are we going to be talking about things like, you know, building tons of housing or is the subway line going to be on the table or is it how transformers is going to be? And it'll be interesting. Definitely. And it, it, this uh, topic, um, leads right into the next one, which, uh, the second speakers up were, uh, John Barrows and Chris Carter, also from the city, um, the city of Boston. Um, John Barrows is the chief of economic development for the city, and Chris Carter is uh, with the Department of New Urban Mechanics. And they I'll say real briefly that he was um, yeah. he's worked in Boston bikes for quite a while. And I don't know if he's if that's a part of New Urban Mechanics or he's just doing something different. But he was kind of for a brief time when Nicole Friedman was not in Boston bikes, not the Boston bikes director. I think he was kind of running it, but not officially. So he's, that's kind of where his, his background is. And they they were uh, basically just sharing with us. Um, they had taken a trip um, to the Netherlands um, this past, uh, I, I don't know if it was the fall or if it was in the summer. And they, they went there for uh, a week or two. And they had a lot of great um, video and, and photos that they shared with us. And, you know, they didn't really have... Um, this wasn't a talk where they were rolling out any concrete plans or anything. They were just sharing with us that they were, they're, they're working in the city. Um, they're working for the city under the mayor. And the mayor asked them to go on this trip. And they were really excited about what they saw. And they were really excited about doing these things in Boston. And one of the things they talked about was how, you know, 10 years ago, it's like there was barely a mile of bike lane in the city. And now they wanted to see how we can be, you know... Um, taking on and and transforming our bike infrastructure to being more like what we're seeing in the Netherlands. And so that's really exciting. And I think they just wanted to let that this community know that that's the things they were excited about. What did you get from it, Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, that's, that they were very excited about it. Um, I, found, I thought about um, a couple of, of big takeaways that were, uh, well, one, I mean, not so big for, for us, but uh, important to underscore is that in... Um, I think John mentioned this in the each in the East Village in New York. They did a, there was a major shopping study that was done, and I know it's been done in a couple other places. I think Cambridge has done a similar study, which I was trying to find the results of, and I couldn't dig that up. But um, you know, other places have done this to to sort of deal with this this idea that you know we need parking because we need business. That's kind of the impetus for it, and and they find that the overwhelming majority in in a place like the East Village, a very dense Manhattan neighborhood, and that the vast majority of of shopping trips are made on foot uh, or by public transit and, you know, the subway representative or on bike portion, but yeah, and bike, there were a significant number of bike as well. Um, so that was, that was interesting. And also the one idea that stuck out at me, it was the, the idea of designing roads for one or two particular uses. Now over here, we're always, it, it kind of flies in the face of the principle of complete streets that we're starting to embrace over here. And I think unbalanced complete streets is, is a very good thing. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, you know, we're often dealing with, uh, you know, we only have a certain amount of right away and we have so many competing interests and, and, and it's more complex than just, you know, not, not every piece of the right of way is going to be the exact same width because the, you know, the highway engineers want turn lanes and the pedestrians, you know, they need a place to wait and they need a bus stop and, you know, all this stuff. So, um, what's, what's interesting is maybe this idea that they found in, in, on their tour was that 
in some places there would be a road that was designed for it was like the bus street and then like it would be a different street that was for cars and there was a different street that was for bikes and you know there might be one street that was like you know had trams and then there was a cycle path alongside it and it was this idea that we don't have to have every mode in every place i thought that was very interesting and could solve a lot of our problems potentially yeah, I, and, you know, we, Jeremy, we had this conversation right afterwards because we were excited about this presentation. And it's interesting. This is sort of their, their post-complete streets. And I think we're going to have to come up with a better word for this um, to describe what it is. But it's sort of like saying, you know, all our streets seem to be designed by, you know, highway and traffic engineers. And so complete streets to us means it's about more than just cars. But there, they're so far past that mentality that they don't worry about including everybody but they're more saying, what's the best use of this street? And in some situations, it's pedestrian and bicycle, and some it's you know sort of like all of the above, but very clear that cars are only a guest on the street. Um, and but the other thing they do is they have you know areas that are um, only for trucks, or or I guess what I'm trying to say is trucks can't go everywhere, so they have streets that are specifically designed for trucks and probably car traffic too. And then a lot of the other streets that cars are allowed to go on, trucks are not allowed to go on. Um, and you know, actually, one of the things that John Barrow said uh, was, you know, think about how you you think about your streets as many different infrastructures as opposed to just one infrastructure. It's not just streets. They're talking about different modes. The infrastructure are different modes. So he's saying we have transit, we have pedestrian, we have bicycle, we have trucks, and we have cars. And those are all sort of separate infrastructures. And sometimes they'll share the same space and sometimes they won't. Um, so, but they don't think of them as, as all needing to be in the same place. Yeah, it's interesting. I like that. So that, I think that's exciting that the Boston, yeah. and, and I think what what Jeremy said earlier about the economic implications of these ideas was telling us that if the city is if the city is coming and telling transit like transit minded people that there is an economic argument for this, then that's telling us that this isn't just us needing to lobby the city for these things. This is the city saying this is what's best for us. So now there's going to be sort of a, a new a new attitude coming from the top down in the city, which is that the best thing we can possibly do for our businesses is to incorporate these ideas because they're saying the best way to get um, more more spending on Main Street is to have better pedestrian and bicycle um, infrastructure because people are much, le- much less likely to get off their bus um, or to get off a train or to get out of their car and go into a store because there's a lot of hassle involved with that. But if you're just on your bike or you're just on, on feet, foot, you're much more likely to make spontaneous um, stops and spontaneous purchases. That makes a lot of sense. So the next uh, presentation um, was Nathan Payton with the Bar Foundation. And uh, this is something near and dear to Jeremy's heart, so I'll let him uh, introduce <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, so... Um, the, the Bar Foundation was the lead sponsor of a of a study that's I believe still ongoing. Um, it's called the BRT. Well, I don't know. People have been calling it the BRT Study Group. I don't know if there's a more official name for it. And somewhere I have a I have a piece of paper that has that information. I don't know if I have it with me. Anyway, um, so this the study is basically it was um, well, so it was, it was done by um, the Institute for Transport Development and Policy, which is a an international NGO that works on uh, transit planning and, you know, promotes basically good, what good transit service looks like and how it relates to the community and all this good stuff. And so the, anyway, the purpose of the study is to look at places, look at um, what good BRT is. So we talked about bus rapid transit a little bit on this show and, uh, you know, people who are familiar with this will know that um, basically the, the good way to, the way to think about BRT is, is uh, you know, think about the, the best possible thing that you can have. Uh, best possible transit service that you can have. Um, this is with a bus. Um, it's it's sort of like think of like if the red line, if what we know of the red line, was buses, right? So buses can be a lot more than what we've allowed them to be in our cities. And what this study is was doing is saying there's a lot of places where we need serious transit investment in our city, and could BRT play a role here? Um, and they were very set on. They don't want to, you know, mess around with, like, you know, a few signal tweaks here and there and these, like, you know, painted bus lanes that we have on Washington Street that no cars parking anyway. And, 
you know, this is this is what they would call gold standard. You know, this is medians, you know, median busways with concrete, with high level, you know, level boarding at stations and offboard fare payment, and you know, big stations with the shelters, and you know, what you see in uh, Transmilenio and Bogota and uh, Mexico City and Curitiba and various cities in China have this. Uh, this, you know, the best that you can possibly make it. And so they they have identified a few corridors, um, which I like to think of as the well, which basically are, uh, you know, the Route One on a Mass Ave from Harbor to Dudley, uh, the Route Thirty Two on Hyde Park Ave from Forest Hills down to uh, I guess Hyde Park, um, and the Twenty Eight. Well, the Silver Line, the Silver Line Five, the Silver Line on Washington Street. Um, they're proposing, you know, upgrading that to like real, you know, median the whole deal, um, and then there's the Twenty Eight, which was. A few people may remember that a couple of years ago there was a proposal for the 28X, which was to upgrade Route 28 going from Dudley down to uh, Mattapan on Blue Hill Avenue and, and uh, Warren Ave, I believe. Um, so there was that that proposal, and that failed for some silly community reasons for the most part. Um, they were There was fault on both sides, <laughs> we'll say that. Um, and then there was another one that, that they, they described as uh, Sullivan Square to Longwood, and I don't know exactly what corridor that's going to be. I don't know if they're envisioning kind of like an urban ring, like CT2 kind of deal, or if they're just um, if they're just thinking something to the core. I, could, I couldn't quite figure that out super quickly. Um, but anyway, these are the five corridors that they've identified as places where it's possible to have this um, gold standard BRT. Now I sort of take a little bit of issue with that for the same reason that I take issue with you know the, the idea of where is it possible to have bike lanes? Where is it feasible to have a sidewalk where is it feasible to have anything right it's that we're what is what is guiding that decision are we saying like are we only looking at streets where there is you know a minimum right of way of you know 20 feet and say okay well nobody else can use the street it's only a bus or are we only looking at places where car traffic wouldn't be affected or you know how is this being uh, it, it, often it's a ladder and so that's why i'm a little pessimistic there but um yeah we'll see see what uh so that, that's what they they proposed um, and then I guess one more comment I will make. Um, oh, they, they said that the big argument that they, that they give for this is uh, time savings. And time savings are important in the context of, you know, that it, it takes can take a lot less time. You know, if you shorten the 28 trip, you know, by like 10, 20%, for example, you know, that makes a huge difference in people's lives and it's easier to make connections. And, but the other thing is, that, you know, what you can do with those time savings. You know, you can reinvest in more service. You can, and it's about more than just time savings, too. It's about, uh, it's about convenience, about ease of transfers. It's about, you know, protection from the weather. It's about the, the whole gamut. And, and at the end of the line is um, what encompasses all of this is sort of respect and some would say dignity. You know, it's like, you know, you're important. You're, you know, making a good choice to get around the city and we want to encourage this. And, uh, you know, that's what. You know, that's one of the good reasons to have uh, good quality transit. Yeah, and I think this is one of the places where, um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, with, with the first two talks that we, we talked about um, coming from the city of Boston, and then this one also um, involves several routes that are wholly within, you know, the city limits. So, you know, as we're beginning to put, put all these things together, maybe we're going to see that um, we've got um, a group of people um, working at City Hall that uh, really want to put, you know, some political capital on the line and make a few of these things happen. You know, we hope so. But, um, you know, as as the listener is thinking about these things, um, we're not going to spend too much time talking about the gold standard um, or, or these proposals tonight because uh, one of the things that Mark and Jeremy are, are uh, passionate about is having a show coming up uh, probably in January that's going to be pretty much a whole show dedicated to BRT. And we've already talked to uh, Nathan, um, you know, who gave this talk. And uh, he'll either be a guest on the show or he'll be providing a lot of the material um, that we only get to see briefly during the presentation. But but rest assured, listener, we're coming back to this one in much more detail in the future. If you have ideas or questions about BRT, uh, about the routes that Jerry mentioned, um, or about what you see as the challenges or opportunities for BRT in Boston, we really want you to uh, reach out to us uh, um, on the website, through email or on Twitter, <clears throat> and, and let us know about that so we can include you know your concerns and questions on that show, which will be coming up in January. Uh, the next presentation, uh, the fourth one, was uh, Kevin O'Dell um, with On The Move, and he uh, basically gave an overview of the new U-Pass, uh, University Pass, 
plan that's being implemented. Um, it was announced, uh, I, I guess at this point, two weeks ago, that the T was going to have a pilot program of the University Pass and also um, a new pilot program with the ride of uh, a means-based fare system um, for a certain portion of the population that uses the ride. Um, of course, Kevin was talking at this point mostly about U-Pass, and the, the meat of the plan, I would say, is uh, something that was floated when the fair hikes were discussed uh, a few years back, and uh, Kevin um, was a part of all those conversations, and he definitely credited that as sort of being one of the reasons that here we are today launching this this trial program. And what's going to happen is um, the city is going to try to team up with the universities to get the universities to pay for every student to have a T-Pass, um, and of course, uh, with the universities doing that, they'll get it at a discounted rate, um, but... The idea is that, you know, with, with all the students having passes, that's going to be increased revenue um, for the T and uh, increased you know, users, um, students that are, are going to, A, they're going to be able to afford um, the passes because they're going to have them handed to them, you know, when they um, show up for class. Um, B, I do think that a lot of people who are worried about fare evasion, um, at least from personal experience I've had with friends who are in school, I think some of the fare evaders are students who just don't want to um, shell out an extra cash um, uh, when they think they can just, you know, especially on the green one, they can just flash their weekly or monthly card even <laughs> after it's expired. And as long as the bus, as long as the train is busy, then they know that they're going to get questioned about whether or not they're up to date on on their Charlie ticket. Um, but so there's definitely some upsides there. Uh, the big question I have about this program is, um, so basically we're bringing additional users into a system that's at capacity. And a lot of these people, a lot of these universities are on the green line. And we talked in our last show, was the, the last show with, uh, with when Ari was here, and we were talking about how um, the ridership gains have been flat on the green line. And basically, we, we talked about a whole host of reasons, but, but basically it's because there's no more capacity. So it, it's interesting to me. I mean, I'm, I definitely support this program, but I do wonder how it's going to work because if we're going to be introducing new people to a system that's already at capacity, uh, you know, where where does the fudge factor? Where, where do we get this additional capacity from? And we talked about a lot of operational things that can be introduced to give us 5 or 10% more capacity. Um, but I'm really, I'm really concerned about this. And I also think that the universities, uh, maybe if they, they maybe signed up for this as a trial um, on a trial um, basis, but I'm worried that, you know, BU operates the BU shuttle. I know that um, other schools have some of their own um, transit solutions, and I see the schools probably wanting to say, okay, so we're going to pay you. Are, are, are you going to start running, you know, the BU shuttle, or are we going to be running the BU shuttle and paying you for our students that have transit passes? And, you know, basically, you know, it comes down to dollars and cents, I think, and, and the universities don't want to be paying twice for transit for their students. And I'm not sure how quickly the T can ramp up or take over the operations of what the universities are providing right now. I don't know. Do you have other thoughts about that, Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, on that last one, it's good. part of this is going to be the T's ability to, to sort of sell this to the universities. And, you know, <laughs> what they've put forth so far doesn't seem so uh, doesn't seem like they really understand where they're, where they're going with this. But um, putting that aside, I, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of models of, of this kind of program. Um what, the T says that this program is the first in the nation, and it was like a direct quote in the article. So I'm looking, and I'm going. I, mean, I know I've seen this before. It's Chicago, Milwaukee, Denver, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, New Haven, Seattle. Are just a few of the places that that have this. Um, and some of these programs are totally free, and others uh, charge like half or less. Um, like in Minneapolis, it's hundred dollars per semester. Uh, MIT has a pilot program. It's, they give half off, fifty percent mm -hmm. off. So I mean, <laughs> this apparently does exist. But the the and so the way they fund these programs typically is um, they, there's there's sort of it's a discounted fare, but it's also charged to students in many cases through their tuition fees. So it's something that like the student governance body will will vote for. And uh, you know some of these what was this? There was um, yeah the spring of 2009 in Boulder, Colorado, students voted eight to one in favor of increasing their fee to maintain free bus pass and bicycle programs. So it's I mean it's something that's wildly popular and the um, you know that's how it's it's sort of funded. Uh, and the other point that that you made is, um, oh yeah, it was exactly what I was going to say. In terms that this is, they say you say that this is going to generate a huge profit. Um, you know, they have like sixty million dollars of revenue or whatever, and they were going to use it to to pay for the youth pass. Which the youth pass, you know, great wonderful thing. I mean, I think it should I'm be glad you mentioned the youth pass. Yes. We've got to talk about that. That's though. right. Uh, maybe we'll just talk about that in a minute, I guess. Um, and so, 
this the universe, you know bringing all these new people into the system is great, but like you said, it assumes that the existing service levels are sufficient to handle that, and they're not. I mean, who are we kidding, right? It's like the green line is like anybody. You know, we talked about the green line. Right? Anybody new who's going to try riding it is going to say, "Well, fuck it, I'm not going to. This is ridiculous. I can't depend on this." And so that's yeah. You you don't even on the buses like we don't have the capacity for more people. So is this revenue going to be used to add service? And if so, I say wonderful. This is the most amazing news I've heard in a long time. If that's the case, so um, and I think it needs to be because. We need to, and we need to look at things like, you know, off-board fare collection and other things will speed up the service so we can get more service. But if we're collecting $40 million here, you know, we need to look at reinvesting into the service. I hope it's not just going to be, not just going to be like, oh yeah, we can cut the budget by $40 million. Well, and I, you know, one thing we also talk about repeatedly on the show is um, the ability of certain groups to get, you know, sweeter deals with, um, with the MBTA or with other with trans agencies in general, and you know, a lot of times it tends to be you know a company when they're putting in a new corporate headquarters and they say we want to stop here, and you know, th- there's good and bad things about that being able to happen. I think you know we talk about how the bad side is that it's not necessarily that it's that it's bad that they're able to do that, but it's you know there's a lot of other people that don't have that power that also need you know a stop. But I you know I think that it'll be interesting to see what comes from this because these universities will gain a little extra negotiating ability um, with the with the T to say you know we want some very specific service improvements um, things that probably everybody wants to see and maybe they'll be able to push for that uh, especially since a lot of these universities are on the green line and you know one of the things you said just now uh, I, I was thinking back to when I was in college and I was in student government. And there would be proposed fee increases, you know, and it's always usually it was on a credit hour basis. I remember, and it was always a huge deal. Um, and so that'll be interesting to see with you know these like sixty five or whatever it is, you know, universities that are in the Boston area, you know, how these votes are going to come out on a campus level, how they're going to deal with this, because you know students in a lot of schools, and I'm not familiar with all the cases here, but in a lot of schools, students do have a little bit of a say on what kind of fees get passed through to them and their tuition. But I do think, you know, it is it is a chicken or egg kind of thing. Do you, you, do you add more riders before you improve service? Um, do you get the revenue before you spend it? You know, because revenue is an issue here. So I guess um, it's going to be a good thing, I think, either way, because it's going to introduce... These the students, they're basically not going to see this as a cost they pay. So they're sort of going to be captive riders <laughs> in the sense that... Um, you know, we say, well, there's no capacity. Okay, there is capacity. You might have to wait for a few trains where they can get on, where they're going to have to put up with uh, what some of us, you know, when, when we're riding, feel like are subhuman conditions sometimes <laughs> when we're on some of these trains. But they're also probably going to feel like, well, you know, I've got the pass anyway. I didn't have to pay a marginal price to, for this trip. You know, so they're sort of like, you know what, I'm not paying. It, it feels like it's free, so I guess it's okay to wait for a few trains or whatever I have to put up with. You know, so I think they they will have a bit of a captive audience that will put up with some things, and then you know if we can just keep this going for a while, then we will have time for improvements. Cool, yeah, and um, so the other aspect of it is the youth pass. Um, that this the basic the gist of this is that um, the youth pass program is is being put forward as a, as a way to pay for um, the youth pass. Now I think it's completely valuable on its own, and it should absolutely be done on its own. But the um, and the youth pass is basically think, like half. I think it's a half price fare for youth for a monthly. Twenty six dollars, which I think is less. Oh, that's less than half. I feel like it was twenty six. It's more like a third. I think I'm. I think I'm quoting the right number. Twenty six um, for a yes, monthly, right? For a month, right? Yep. And so this is something that was advocated for. Um, it puts a lot of effort by a number of youth activists. And, you know, students went and they, they picketed in the transportation building and a number of them got arrested. And it was like a whole big deal. This has gone back probably six months, maybe a year. Um, and it was I remember it was all over Twitter, too. They kept tweeting, you know, when are we getting a youth pass? When are we getting a youth pass? And I think they just pissed off Richard Davy enough that he eventually was just like, all right, let's sit down and talk about this. And so they, um, yeah, so then they, they worked out this deal. And apparently the students were very big on trying to figure out how to pay for it. And um, so the, the youth pass, I think, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, we, you know, the fact that we, you know, we talk about affordability of transit, right? And, and the fact that we have people of, of all ages, but, you know, especially kids, you know, how do you say to a kid, no, you can't go to this after school program. You can't, you know, you can't do that. You can or, you know, maybe your kid's 15, 16. Well, now you can't get a job so that you can, you know, pay for stuff that your family can't afford to give you because now you can't take the bus. And, um, and I think affordability is a problem for everyone. Um, I want to see us address that either either with like low income fares or or just I mean I just want it to be free for everyone. But uh, maybe that's another conversation. But I think the youth pass on balance is a, is a wonderful thing, and I'm really happy to to see it put forward. 
Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. This is this is a great thing for the city, and um, this also reminds me of uh, you know last year. Um, this is something that's been an ongoing thing with uh, uh, the Boston Public Schools of um, transitioning their students from um, busing, which um, I, I I don't know what the percentage is, but it seems like a lot of the busing, a lot of the buses that are used um, by the public schools are private contractors. Um, and they've been trying to save money by moving as many students as possible uh, into giving them T-passes instead of um, taking the bus. And so I remember last year, um, as we were getting into the summer, they were rolling this out also for middle, middle school students, um, you know, like 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, I believe. And they went back and forth and decided to do sort of the halfway you know, job of you know, not all of them and only starting with the older kids first. But so the youth pass and the students, you know, taking transit, taking the T instead of school buses. I think you know these things are kind of interacting together, and it'll be interesting to watch. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, and uh, you know, I, I have seen the signs on the T. You know, they have these ads in the bus. You know, like um, which I don't know. They don't really seem to communicate much of anything. But they basically say that the students are are riding the T, and I I think that's I have sort of mixed feelings on that, which maybe is a that's a whole other conversation. But I'm wondering how that's working out. Have you seen that? Because I don't live. I see a lot of students on the T uh, on the orange line. Um, and, uh, you know, they're definitely boisterous, and so I think that some of us old, a little bit older commuters uh, that aren't, you know, or, you know, decades even removed from high school sometimes feel like, uh, you know, we just want to, like, have some peace and quiet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, they're generally civil. Uh, I haven't seen any, anything disastrous happening, and I, I do, I, you know, I, I do think tra- transit should be for everybody, so I support that. You know, I have a teacher friend who works in administration, and he's, he's not here in Boston, but... Um, you know, one of his uh, pieces of, of feedback about education generally is that he feels like, you know, what is it? You know, we're we're specializing in education, yet we have people in our education department that are basically running transportation agencies. Yeah. And they're not transportation experts. They're teachers who went into administration who got assigned to do transportation. And, and that's probably not the... The, the, the top priority, you know, that they wanted necessarily was to go into teaching so they could do transportation. Um, but, but, his, but his point is, is well taken that, you know, how much of our resources, and, you know, sports is a whole other argument too, but how much of the resources of our education um, dollars, and I know that we have different sources for different monies, you know, a lot of times, but these resources are being spent on transportation, and this is not the core competency of this group. You know, and there's all kinds of concerns about why students would um, be on buses that are solely for students as opposed to, you know, the general transit and, you know, being a parent, you know, I understand some concerns too, but I think I think it's a point that's well made and well taken and deserves a lot more um, discussion as a society. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons about, you know, why we have busing, you know, politically and, and racial and all these things. Um, but I'm excited to see, you know, a city that's that's doing this. I don't know about how this is happening across the country, but... I no, think so I'm glad you brought up that last point, because, I mean, yeah, it's, like, a lot of the reason... I mean, unfortunately, the reason that we have a lot of the busing is, is for reasons that should have never existed in the first place, right? But um, the, the, the main... Yeah, one thing I'm concerned about, I mean, just like we talked about the university pass, is that, you know, all of a sudden they brought all these students on to existing bus service, and I don't think they added service. They might have added a few trips here and there. Um, the T used to run a lot of... Uh, what they called extras or uh, school trips in many cases they just called them it was basically um, you know on a, on a route that got a lot of uh, they got a lot of students going to school in the morning or whatever because a lot of times people wouldn't take the school bus either because of a stigma or because they woke up late in the morning or whatever the hell so you know the people would they would take where they would take the bus to the mall after school or something like that. you ever see the Leechmere station at, at three o'clock on a weekday um, but so they, you know, it generates very large crushes of students, and so what transit agencies have done historically all over the place is they run these extra trips. It's just, it's just somebody who's, you know, sitting in a garage or in a depot, whatever, and like they go, or it's like bundled into somebody's work, whatever. But it's like somebody goes and and does like a particular route, like I say, let's say just I don't know, like thirty four, which is like I don't know, the schools on there. I assume there are. So like they would run a piece of it, and like a bus would just go out to a to a particular place, like say where the school is in the afternoon. And they would just it would just start there, and it would be like it would do schedule it so it's like five or ten minutes before the regularly scheduled bus that's doing the whole thing. So this way, like you would get all the students on that bus, and then you wouldn't have to, you know, you wouldn't be this crush load, and it usually leads to bunching and all this other stuff. So 
I mean, there was all you know various forms of that, and eventually they would say the school wouldn't be directly on the route, and so they'd say, well, you know what, if we go directly from from you know this route, we deviate to the school, then like all the students will take this bus, and we don't have to worry about them on our other buses. And so they would do things like that, and they, over time they've gotten rid of them because in the past few years, I think it was maybe five years ago, that FTA said the federal level said that you know you can't be you can't be getting into school transportation and they don't want you to do anything that would potentially take business away from a private company. It's just like the gist of this. Oh, okay. So it, and it's really complicated stuff. Some schools, some places still run some of it, but the T has very few up until recently. I mean, they had like three routes that were like, it's on the somewhere. You might find it as like 9701 and then two and three, but it, they pretty much eliminated those. Now, I don't know if they've added a few more, but it does put a big strain on the system, especially in the morning. In the afternoon, not so bad because you have, like, it's like the extended rush hour. You know, the students start getting out at, like, 3 or so, and then you get, like, the real crush is, like, you know, 4 to 5. and then. But in the morning, it's, like, 7 to Oh, yeah, I, t- I like, took an earlier bus this week at, at, you know, 7 when I'm usually on the bus at 8. And I noticed that the, I was surprised because the bus was packed, um, which I didn't expect. Um, but it was, I noticed that it was three quarters, you know, like looked like middle school or high school students. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm interested. If anybody has experience with that, you know, write it and let us know. Well, and we'll as you can see, just I think we've discussed it several times already in the show. The general theme of um, adding more capacity uh, before necessary or adding more users before necessarily adding capacity, and um, we'll see how the system deals with it. But I think um, what's gonna what is happening, and we're sort of in this age of. Um, we're moving more and more and more people onto our transportation system as far as the transit side of it. And we get to a point where there's so many people there that there's a lot of power to demand um, more funding um, and more improvements. So uh, it sounds like the chicken or the egg right now falls uh, falls squarely on the side of users first, funding second. The uh, oh, the, I'll, I'll, I'll kick this one off, um, and then we'll see what Jeremy has to say. But, I think I know where you're going here. Uh, so yes, the fifth speaker um, was um, uh, Matthew George. He's the CEO for Bridge Transit, and um, I was actually so they were also we'll have to we'll have to disclose they were a sponsor of the ten and one talk, um, and he he basically I I didn't know if he was going to give a. Um, a specialized presentation to the group. He, he pretty much gave what I what I assume to be, and from other things that I've seen, sort of his his general. Uh, this is what Uber is, and these are the the ways we're going to change the world. Um, bridge. I, I said Uber. I meant bridge. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's because I had Uber written on my card as just a, a side note uh, for, about something else. But anyway, um, yeah. So he sort of gave his generic presentation. I mean, and we'll have to say just right off the top, you know. Um, um, Matthew George is a very charismatic person, so he, he presents well. Um, I was a little disappointed because we thought, you know, I thought here's a room full of people who are uh, very knowledgeable about these issues. So I thought it would have been nice to, um, you know, speak to that knowledge and maybe make things talk on a little bit more technical level about why they're able to deliver what he wants to deliver. Um, so yeah, so I thought, you know. It, not that not that I not that I necessarily felt like he was intentionally um, not like talking down to the audience or but I thought you know people here in this room know a lot more about the topic so it would it would be good to address us on that level as opposed to addressing us on the the level that you're taking this conversation to the general public at does that does that make sense for yeah no I completely agree with you and I I think I actually didn't write anything down for this because I didn't um, have anything that I really wanted to, to talk about but I, I i'm thinking about how the you know some, some of the things that we've discussed about bridge we talked about it in at least one of the previous episodes is that you know how does it interact with the transit system is there a room for a private operator to come in and sort of demonstrate what the gap you know fill some of the gaps in the public transit in ways that don't take years to permit and go through the public involvement and all that stuff and you know questions like that and they none of that was really addressed so i guess we can't really comment on that yeah and i felt like the general theme was sort of um if you're familiar with the issues that uh, that that citizens or residents, you know, in San Francisco are having with the tech community there, um, I sort I, I got the sense of where they're getting that attitude from um, with with a young guy who's coming into the scene and is very confident and and very visionary and and I I feel like of the three of us, I'm probably maybe maybe the most supportive of what Bridge is trying to do, um, but I still feel like. I don't like when people over 
overpromise maybe. Um, I, I, I think that he really believes in his vision of changing the face of how transit is delivered to people. Um, I think it's a very long-term vision. Uh, the way that, that he speaks about what they're, how they deliver um, their transportation is almost like it's a real-time, they can change their bus routes real-time based on who has opened their app this morning and where they want to go, and that's just not the way it works right now. Um, I, I feel like, I, I know that he wants to work towards that. You know, I think a lot of people in the room can understand, you know, if we're at a real place, you know, wh- where are we today and, and how are we implementing technology that can incrementally get us, you know, to an amazing place? Uh, how can that technology be shared with, uh, with the transit agencies, you know? Mm-hmm. Because to the extent that Bridge, and we've talked about this before, to the extent that Bridge um, solves some problems, I think you're going to see the transit agency, in this case the MBTA, will probably adopt some of those um, solutions, whether it's saying, hey, here's, and this is what they're doing, basically the, the time savings, which a lot of times will guarantee a 53% time savings on your commute. And I think those numbers, that 53% comes from um, using routes, um, for example, Coolidge Corner to Kendall Square, and assuming that the person they're competing with is taking um, the green line all the way to Park Street and then getting on the red line, and assuming that the person is having the maximum wait times you know, at each place, mm-hmm. You know, where that person could also, if they plan it right, they could hit the one bus and go right across the bridge and walk to Kendall Square. And the time savings aren't nearly as dramatic. Um, so, so a lot of times what they're doing is they're taking, they're taking locations that are maybe indirectly served by the T. And to the extent that they solve that problem, then the T will probably adopt some direct service there maybe, you know, if, it, if there's sufficient ridership to, 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 to bring that to, to bear. But... Um, you know, so but there will always be more places for bridge to try to solve problems. There is a role for private transit in, in or they may there may you know, there is a role in, in, in certain places. Um, you know, we have we talked about um, private shuttles in, in certain contexts of you know, where you, you have a bunch of employees that work all in this one place and they, you know, they, they all come in from this, you know, there are a whole bunch of people like, you know, taking commuter rail or whatever and it, it makes a lot more sense to just like have a shuttle to just bring them to this place as an example here. And so, you know, then you have the issues of where places that aren't served very well by, by the T. And so if they're looking to make a difference here, here and there, and, and, you know, really try something that the T can't do, because it's, it is a very, it's very difficult for a transit agency to, to start a new route. I mean, you have to go through years of public involvement and then, and then obviously once you put it on the ground, you know, you do like a six month or one year pilot, it's going to take six months to build up ridership at least and then, you know, then you have winter and summer, and so you, you really want kind of a year. Um, and then if you try to, if you say, oh, this, this didn't work, you know, we're going to pull it or we're going to tweak it, then, well, then you, some people got used to this, and now they rely on it. And they didn't, you know, they didn't treat it as a temporary thing. So you get big issues planning a route. If a private company can come in and say, you know, well, you know, for good and bad, I mean, that's why we have public service, so that you have to serve everyone, and you can't tell everybody to basically fuck off if you, you know. That is, you're right. That is, the, that is the exciting part is they're able to um, pilot new routes and new stops, um, they might say it's a real-time basis. It's more like, you know, each week or each month, they might say, well, ha- we'll have a stop here, you know, they're slowly expanding their service, and that's really exciting, because it does, I think it gives uh, the rest of us that are interested in transit, and especially the transit agencies, the ability to, to watch this. We cut this short, because for more discussion on Bridge, you can refer to episode one. But if there's, if there's, if there's listeners um, that have taken Bridge recently or have their thoughts, please share those with us um, so we can, you know, talk more about this. And, uh, and we definitely encourage the people at Bridge to, to, to keep working on this, and we're watching with interest. Which one's next? I am. We... Uh, Alex oh, Epstein. Oh, yeah, that's why, you're, that's why you're pointing at me. Okay, yeah, so I interviewed Alex Epstein on episode two of the, I think it was episode two, uh, of this podcast. And he, so I interviewed him, he talked about his latest research on uh, urban truck and bus safety. Um, Alex is a researcher with uh, Volpe Institute, it's, uh, part of the Department of Transportation uh, for the federal agency at, uh, in Kendall Square. And uh, so he's done a, a lot of research on, on this, on basically pedestrian and bicyclist interactions with large vehicles, uh, namely, you know, think tractor trailers and, and MBTA buses and the like. Um, and they were, back in, I think it was 2012, there were a number, there were at least five uh, fairly high-profile crashes involving uh, bicycles and MBTA buses. And, you know, we've seen a few since then, I think. 
and so there's been there's been a lot of efforts to uh, sort of address that, and um, this is one of the realities that we deal with. You know, we want to make our cities more friendly to people biking and walking, but at, you know, at the same time, you have big uh, you have these large vehicles in there that, that really aren't designed for that kind of environment. You know, they have big blind spots, and you know, you can put all the mirrors on it, but you know, at the end of the day, is you know, the drivers has you know all these demands, and you know, they're expected to look at the, the GPS device and you know check off things, and you know, and they're you know they're pretty high up, and then you know all these all these issues. So. Um, this is. I'm not going to recap all the everything that Alex talked about, but a lot of it focused on on uh, side guards and other equipment that can be put on the truck to, um, on the one hand, sort of sort of, uh, well, basically to move for the most for the most part with the equipment equipment on the vehicle is kind of a last resort. It's kind of you know to present the fatality, um, so that if you're if you're hit by a truck. You know, say it's like right hooking you or something, that it's going to push you out of the way. Now, the first resort is going to be the, the truck driver that you're not getting right hooked. Um, you know, that you're not there in that spot, and the truck driver is not overtaking you like that. And you know, there's other issues that still need a lot of work. If we see the way some of these trucks drive around the city, um, some of them are kind of terrifying. There was a hubway rider that, that um, was injured um, in a crash with a garbage truck on uh, Columbus and Mass Ave in the back in the South End um, maybe a year ago and that it is believed that because there was a side guard in the truck that that person survived so this is just a quick summary and some of these uh, imp- these things and particularly side guards and you know mirrors and other things have been adopted by or are being adopted by Boston and Cambridge and some large companies uh, save that stuff was one that was mentioned this recycling company um, and there are others. So in this, I think, New York City, there's been some big progress in New York City. Some bus transit agencies have adopted them, although the MBTA has not. Um, and I don't think, I think when I spoke to Alex, I don't think he was sure of the reasons why the MBTA was not, although they had, he believed they had tested it. Um, so I, I don't have an update on that. But um, it, you know, there is there is progress being made on this, and it's an important stuff. And uh, I urge you to follow his research. And basically, he he was giving an update because he had given a talk on the same topic two years ago, when it was really more on the idea formation stage of a you know here's something that we should do. Right. And he was able to come back now and say we have some success. You know, not at the federal level like maybe he had That's hoped right, yes. that he would. Where he started at the federal level, um, but having cities adopt this and this this comes back to something we talk about again and again here: how uh, local adoption and and trying different things out of the cities is I think how we're going to see a lot of um, changes happen in transportation, transit, and safety uh, moving forward. So, so that's exciting that some big transit agencies, not transit agencies, but some, some large cities are adopting this um, with a lot of the trucks that they have on the streets. And a couple of transit agencies. Then. Yeah. Chicago and Washington, D.C. were among them, I believe. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, stay tuned on something like this. Um, do you want to talk about Kate a little bit? Yes, uh, Department of Play. Yes, um, this was very exciting. I, I enjoyed this, and uh, I, I knew I was going to be... Uh, well, I, well, I knew I was excited about it going into it. Um, maybe So I, I sort of had high hopes, and I'm not sure if I quite met those hopes. But, um, yeah, so the... And she had a couple of... So I have, I'm, I'm looking through my notes here. and um, So Kate is... is um, she is a student... Well, yeah, she's an artist, right? She's a student, I believe. In I don't know where she is now. Well, she okay. was. I might be totally wrong on this. Now I'm embarrassed. All right. Well, so anyway, so she was giving a talk. This was a talk by uh, Kate Balug. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing the name. Uh, B a l u g. And um, so if you look her up, she has her proposal for the Department of Play, which is basically a, a way for cities to um, sort of rethink, reimagine the, the public spaces. Um, and a lot of a lot of what she was talking about with things on a temporary basis, like open streets events and other things, where uh, people were being given the opportunity to participate in in ways that you know normally we think about cities as um, serving function over aesthetics. You know, you talk about you talk about you know planting some some trees even, or like you know putting a you know some decoration or making a, a public plaza that people can hang out in. And you know the first pushback is is well you know we need that space for people moving. You know these streets are for for you know moving. You know typically people say moving cars, but you know also moving people. Um, and so this this sort of goes against that. It um, it's it sort of flies counter that notion of uh, you know play not being a, a serious thing. Um, and she had some interesting observations on the people in Boston, which uh, sort of struck me. And she said that. Um, do you remember where she was from? 
Well, she had started out with this idea when she was at the Harvard University Graduate School of Design, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also, um, I thought she had pursued um, urban um, urban design at, at, at some point um, okay. when she was here, which I, I thought she was at MIT, um, but I was just looking at her profile. At any rate, um, you know, Building what you said, one of her main points was that a lot of times um, the aesthetics of our public spaces are sort of the afterthought. It's sort of like, okay, now that we've planned, you know, the street and the sidewalk and everything else, now, you know, we'll put some, some planters here and there and maybe we'll hire, maybe we'll commission a piece of art. Um, but she was saying, you know, why don't we have a department of play that thinks about this on a full-time basis and on a, in a comprehensive way and not just at the end of a project but also at the beginning of a project and how can we have um, lots of like pop-up sort of art installations or interactive ways of having people play together um, and you know and it really helps people perceive and, and live the city in a different way. It was, it was pretty neat and it was also neat because she was um, incorporating it um, into um, um, transportation. So yeah. Cool. And, um, yeah, I was going to try to follow up with her. I didn't get to that yet, but I want to learn more about this and uh, sharing more about uh, different ways of thinking about our spaces. And not just, you know, one day, I mean, these, these one-day things, you know, these open streets or Sunday parkways or Ciclovia or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, these are these are great, but also doing these things on, on a more permanent basis. Yeah, she, um, I, I want to go back, and we kind of skipped, and you know, not allowed to go out of order here, but we did. We skipped, and uh, um, Josh Ostroff from uh, T4MA, Transportation from Massachusetts, he did speak, uh, and he spoke about, um, basically about how the, um, the the ballot question in November to repeal the indexing of the gas tax, um, it passed, so the indexing was repealed, and he just sort of gave a recap of what the efforts of the coalition had been. Uh, Movable Streets is one of the members of the coalition, so he was sort of letting us know what all they had done and why he felt like they had been outgunned and why the question didn't pass. Um, but the moral of the story was um, a lot of people uh, had been reached out to and a lot of people are joining the movement and he believes it's you know it's gaining momentum and we're going to continue to to build on this and to uh, move more towards you know our goal of better funding for transportation even though if, if we come to a dead end at this point so. Yeah, and I think you reminded me a little a little bit ago that I think he didn't finish his presentation, so that's part of, like, it was probably more to it that he, you know, we would have learned from it um, in terms of, you know, where where we go from here. Yeah, I think that that, that is the the thing, is where, where do we go from here, and um, so I wish we could have heard more about that. Yeah. Um, but, but getting back to Kate and the Department of Play, that feeds really well into the next thing we're going to talk about, which is the Better Block Project. Um and these two, I almost felt like they could have presented together as far as sort of their ideas of, um, and this was uh, Andrew Howard, I believe, is the founder or maybe co-founder of Better Block Project, and you should definitely look look this up. Um, this was probably the thing that the three of us, uh, Mark and Jeremy and I, talked about the most as far as being excited about. And Better Block started off uh, in Dallas, of all places, in his neighborhood, and they just kind of got tired of... Um, you know, a, a beat down kind of area of town where there were storefronts that were not inhabited. Uh, it was a one way, four lane um, street, um, and there just was really nothing there and no reason for everybody to stop. And they just got some friends together and said, hey, this weekend, let's just do, let's just roll out, you know, what we would love to see this place look like. You know, they're painting uh, uh, bike lanes and pedestrian crossings and ins- art installations and. Um, they, they had they invited people to come set up like coffee shops and pet stores and just all kinds of things that were just really cool. And um, what his point was, you know, not only do people really enjoy doing this, but it's sort of a way of them to right now see what's possible. Whereas a lot of times we get into this mindset where we think, well, you know, somebody at City Hall has to appoint a Blue Ribbon Commission to study what the master plan could be and plan for this and put out an RFP or seek a developer and we all have to have years of input and he's saying, no, let's just do it this weekend, you know? (laughs) And the cool thing is that sometimes these projects, people like it so much that they just decide to just make it happen and just not necessarily necessarily leave it the way it is but, but to actually bring this to fruition much quicker than it ever possibly could have 
if they hadn't been able to see it, you know, and live it for a weekend. Yeah, part of, a big part of what he talked about is the uh, the frustration on on uh, you know on one hand is, is um, working with the established channels. You know, it's very difficult to sort of work with the city and you know try to like you know imagine basically just imagine you know your neighborhood like you wanted to you know you want to see that this is like speeding traffic and stuff and you want to see it transformed and you want to see more space to walk around and sidewalk cafes and, you know just imagine going up to you know try reaching out to the city in the conventional ways that you're supposed to be permitted to do that and uh, you know you're not really going to get very far <laughs> and then uh, if you if you are if you you know if you do get a bunch of people together and you advocate it's still going to take years um, and on the other hand people you know he talked about the sort of the futility of trying to convince people of your vision, right? So you, you know, you people give you all kinds of arguments, or you'll get the, you know, people that don't want to give up the parking for one thing, or you know, they just don't really, they just don't really see it. They don't really can't really relate to it. And he said, you know what? If you just get a couple people together and you just do it, and then people see it, and then then now they they like it, they want it, or it's not so bad. Oh, my business didn't die. My business went up threefold. You know. <laughs> well, and you can always. You're always going to have people saying, well, well, here's the problem with your plan. And, of course, there's going to be problems with any plan. But, you know, it's it's more fun <laughs> and things happen more quickly if you go ahead and just do it and then find out what the problems are. And then you can make some changes. And, you know, um, but the other thing he said, he put up uh, one of his slides he showed, you know, people would say, this was great. You know, why can't we do this? And he'd say, well, you know, here's an example of ten laws on the books, you know. Uh, city codes, zoning ordinances, things like this that don't allow us to have this type of public space. And right. so what they like to do is just basically uh, thumb their nose of the law for a weekend and just do it. And then then you get the city um, and the powers that be saying, wow, that was really cool. Why can't we do it? And he'll say, well, because here's all these laws on your books that don't let us do this. So then they can slowly begin to change those laws so that these things can be a reality. Yeah, he gave all those examples about the, you know, all the, the regulations and, you know, just that area. He, he showed, I actually was in that area for a brief time when I visited Dallas a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, yeah, before he showed the images of before, you know, it just looks like any any old, you know, just distressed small city downtown, basically, with these like, big strodes through the city. And, you know, and he, now Oak Cliff's in, in part, I think, is it Oak Cliff's or Oak Cliff? Oak Cliff, uh, I think. Oak Cliff. Um, it's it's now it's like one of the one of the most popular parts of Dallas. It's really you know people people like it. It's sort of like I don't know if I want to say it's like the Davis Square of Dallas, but it kind I of think, is. I think you can go there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know the other thing, and and you know, so we're saying okay, this is a show. This is Transit Matters. This topic, you know, that we're so excited about doesn't really seem to be a lot about transit. Um, and this is where you know those of you listening out there, um, what 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 the three of us we're talking about and then we were also you know talking with other people the reason we're talking so much about this topic is we're thinking how can we bring this type of mentality to transit you know i mean we all can understand how you can do a parklet you know one weekend or what you can do with a we have tons of like city squares here in boston and little neighborhoods and we can transform them and do cool things but how do you introduce transit into that mix um and complete streets is, is a portion of that but that's one of the things that we're going to continue to talk about is is how you can show people overnight, you know, what the possibilities are for transit in right. their neighborhood. Yeah, this is this is sort of more challenging because it's you know you're dealing with established institutions and it's you know you you can't. I was I was thinking like you know could I just stand there and you know could I just like put off a put up a bunch of cones to block off a lane and just like stand there and, until like a bus showed up and then be like you go here and like the bus driver's probably not going to go there because it's just not you know it's an institution and they have to follow rules and so you know you can't just do something like that so it's like what do you, you know how does this this help transit beyond simply access to transit which is very important you know that obviously walking and you know the environment at the bus stop and all that stuff but you know how do we if we're really trying to make transit uh, more efficient faster more comfortable you know, is this something that we can do with can we use these things to approach transit service? I, I do think that the, the the BRT is one of the ways that this could be incorporated. I mean, it would require a little bit more cooperation, probably, um, with uh, with the powers that be to pull it off. But you know, but like you're saying, a, a bus lane could just be cones. It could just be paint. You know, um, in order to just try it out for a little bit. Um, so I think there's there's some definite um, potential there. And another another way that this can really come together is um, the things that happen around transit. So it, it, transit's happening in a public space. Um, how are all these things cooperating together? You know, is if you're th- if you're talking about complete streets, you know, the pedestrian area, 
Um, we could do bus bulbs. You know, you could do that pretty easily. You know, we see parklets a lot as the example here in Boston mm-hmm. and Rosendale. We're re- recording the show tonight. Yeah, um, and there was a there was actually just a somebody had written a, a letter to the editor in the Boston Globe about another article that I had looked at. And they were talking about Dudley Square, and he was there, in the letter it was basically said the you know these the place I, I went to he, the person said you know I went there recently and I was you know doing whatever they were doing and I was astonished by how difficult it is to get around as a pedestrian in Dudley Square and uh, you know you're saying there's, there's no there's no curb ramps and the crosswalks and you wait forever for the signal and the signals aren't in, the crosswalks aren't in the right place and you know all this stuff and and it's and I think about this and I, and I think about some of the busiest bus routes that, that we have you know I mean you look at the one you look at the 32 the 28 in particular and you put in places where it is very difficult to, you know, we put unnecessary barriers to accessing transit, uh, not to mention transit, you know, moving around. So, yeah, if we can sort of rethink the areas, uh, you know, around transit and how transit interacts with the neighborhood, um, you know, that's important too. And so maybe that's the starting place. Yeah, I think that I think that's a, um, the biggest place for potential for sure. And um, so we want to continue talking and thinking about this one because we're really excited about it. And even if we're not able to find really cool ways to incorporate this into transit, um, it's it's definitely a part of the whole complete streets idea, and and how you can transform public spaces. So um, you should look up uh, Better Block. Um, I did talk to him. A lot of cities are uh, having uh, Better Block uh, chapters, if you will, pop up. And I, I asked um, Andrew if you know what his plans were for expanding this. Uh, creating chapters in different cities, and, and he basically said that, you know, his time is 100% consumed with the work that he's doing, um, but, and he kind of, at this point, gets hired as a consultant in different cities where people want him to do one of these projects for them, because I think it's so cool, um, and it kind of is a supplement to their master planning, um, but he said that he never um, trademarked or registered um the name Better Block or, you know, any of his graphics or anything like that. So he's very encouraging of other groups just kind of doing this organically on their own. So if there's somebody here in Boston that sees this and wants to make this happen, uh, it sounds like, you know, you've got his blessing and, and go to the website and learn more about it. Yeah, and we don't encourage you to break any laws. It might be better to ask for forgiveness than permission, but um, we, are, we are not responsible if you uh, choose to get, if you get arrested uh, doing any of this stuff. You're probably not going to get arrested, but you might. <laughs> The uh, the last speaker um, was uh, from Livable Streets, and uh, I'll let you um, give that overview. This would be Jeff Rosenblum, uh, and Jeff, uh, I don't have any notes because I know this topic pretty well. He was talking about Commonwealth Avenue, and I think we talked about this on our show with uh, Matthew Danish in episode five. Um, we This is basically an update on what is happening and the reconstruction of Commonwealth Avenue Phase 2A, which is the area west of the BU Bridge, between the BU Bridge and Packard's Corner. Um, notably, it goes from, uh, I forget the names of the streets, but it basically, the project goes from the, it's the one block west of the BU Bridge to one block east of Packard's Corner. And they're like kind of, some people say, well, that's because the BU Bridge still is going to be a separate phase, and it's, you know, it's its own big nightmare because it's a highway overpass and all that, and so the, the cynic in me sort of says, well, you know, this is sort of they, so that they can o- avoid, like, doing big changes because they'll just be like, well, it's got to integrate with what we have over here, and so we can't, you know, put, like, big cycle tracks or anything like that. So I, I don't know. But anyway, um, there was a meeting, uh, I want to say a couple weeks ago, uh, after since our last podcast, there was a meeting in um, at Boston University, right, right by the BU Bridge. Uh, it was hosted by BU Bikes, a student group. And to give give input, well, to, to learn about the project and um, give input and share stories. Uh, Livable Streets was there presenting uh, information, at, you know, about what what a about street design, basically what what the possibilities are, you know, what is what a cycle track is, you know, what the possibilities for raised crosswalks and um, you know better service for the Green Line and, and um, that sort of stuff. Um, so Jeff gave uh, in in this street talk, um, Jeff gave uh, an overview of. Um, this sort of basically the same thing happened in oh, I want to say about 2005 um, for the portion of Com Ave east of the BU Bridge between the BU Bridge and Kenmore Square. Um, it was a reconstruction of that space, and that was the city's first bicycle lane. And that was in you know well that was almost entirely because of Livable Streets and others advocating. Livable Streets was pretty new at the time, uh, and they were advocating for uh, a rethink of the street. Um, and so instead of having three wide lanes in each direction, it has 
two lanes in each direction, which sometimes are wide, uh, and there's a bicycle lane. And so the city of Boston basically said, well, this this next phase is phase 2A, you know, we're going to put, we'll put bicycle lanes. But there, there already is a bicycle lane there that they have, and it, what Jeff is saying, and people from Liberal Streets are saying, basically, you know what, we're, you know, this is 10 years later, uh, a basic striped painted bike lane is just not good enough anymore. It just doesn't cut it. We have, you know, this, this everybody told stories about how cars double parking in them. I was astonished, even though I, I know what it's like to bike through there, I was astonished simply at how many people in that BU Bikes meeting said, you know, stood up and said that they had been doored. Some people multiple times. Um, and if you've been doored multiple times, it means that, you know, first of all, if you get doored once, you're not going to be riding in the door zone anymore. So if you get doored a second time, it means that, like, you know, there was you were, like, dealing with passing traffic or there was somebody parked where they shouldn't have been or whatever. There's delivery trucks there. There's, you know, you're always getting cut off. And so a lot of it focused on the, the cycling, obviously, because it was a BU Bikes meeting. Uh, but there were some people that talked about the Green Line as well and, you know, BU having an obligation, um, you know, to ensure the safety of, of students and, and others. And uh, there was, the university was very noncommittal. They originally weren't going to speak at the meeting, but they're sort of, now they, they their representative spoke for quite a while and said basically nothing. But uh, it seems like there is some movement on the part of the university now and the commissioner of transportation, uh, Jim Gluley, was there. And so it was sort of, it seems like the, there is, the wheels are start, starting to turn on this project. Um, and nothing is nothing is guaranteed, and they're looking for uh, decisions to make decisions within the next month or two. Um, so it's it's time to you know make your voice heard. But uh, that's sort of the update there, and sort of a recap of where uh, kind of you know the, the beginning and the, and the current of uh, livable streets and where we're going at this point. And for more updates on ComAv, you can follow Livable Streets at livablestreets.info. And uh, I was interviewed in the BU Daily Free Press on ComAv after that meeting, so check that out if you're so inclined. This is going to be the end of Part 1, so join us again for Part 2, where we get into all the latest news. And don't forget to follow us on uh, at transitmatters.info and on Twitter and all the usual places. And uh, we will see you again uh, very shortly.